Hello and welcome to The Spectator Podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman. As Labour's civil war flares up again, I reveal a plot by Tom Watson to oust Jeremy Corbyn. We also talk about Matt Hancock's second favourite app, Babylon Health, and ask, is it really all it's set out to be? And last, with almost a million Poles living in Britain, why don't you ever see them on screen? We talk to the Polish ambassador in London. First, Labour is in turmoil again. Many supporters were disheartened by last week's panorama on anti-Semitism, but not as much as they were shocked by the party's aggressive attack on the whistleblowers in the programme. What's more, many Corbynites are still smarting from the European elections and not all of them agree with the leadership's approach to Brexit. With even loyalists starting to doubt Corbyn, I reveal Deputy Leader Tom Watson's new plot to oust the Labour leader in this week's issue. On the podcast now, I'm joined by Aisha Hazarika, former advisor to Harriet Harman, and Matt Turner, former editor of Evolve Politics. So Matt, how strong do you think Jeremy Corbyn's position is in the Labour Party at the moment? Well, I think, you know, over the last month or so in particular, you know, the the Brexit storm and the anti-Semitism discussion has been a real sticking point for Corbyn's leadership. You know, it's really true to say that it's taken an even more damaging turn. I, I think it's questionable to conclude that this has gone to the wider electorate, you know, besides the YouGov poll putting them in fourth. All other polling companies have had Labour in first or second, which consequently means that they are first mostly in the polling averages as well. What's not questionable is the poisonous atmosphere that this has created internally inside the party. And having read Isabel's piece in The Spectator, you know, she's right to say that Tom Watson has become the figurehead for that discontent felt by many members of the Parliamentary Labour Party at the very least. What about the membership? Do you think they feel that on ease as well? I think I think it's a really difficult one because Corbynites, you know, particularly those who've frequented Twitter regularly, you know, I've I've seen a lot of it and they've harked on about Watson's plotting for a considerable amount of time. You know, I think it's safe to say they've been proven right on this one. And I think that's why there's still an element of scepticism regarding Tom Watson and the arguments against Corbyn. You know, whether it be over Brexit or anti-Semitism, there's still a kind of underlying belief there that there is some kind of weaponization or some kind of ulterior motive, which I think is, you know, an unhealthy idea to have. But ultimately, if you look at the behaviour of many members in the Parliamentary Labour Party, it's actually quite well grounded. Aisha, you're not Jeremy Corbyn's greatest fan, it's fair to say. Are you hopeful that there are people in the party working to see him gone one way or the other? I don't think that's going to happen. And even though I'm not a huge fan of Corbyn, I was actually prepared to uh, give him the benefit of the doubt at the beginning, but his stance on Brexit and the anti-Semitism stuff is really disappointing. But having said that, I was not part of the gang of people that pushed for that terrible coup back in 2016. And I actually advised people at the time, this is a disastrous thing to do. And I still think that now, look, I'm not a fan of Corbyn, but I still think a large percentage of the membership, you know, do have a huge amount of affection for him. And I think that whether you call them centrists in the party or people who are disaffected, I feel that there isn't a kind of a strategic plan. What there is, is a lot of anger about Corbyn and there's lots of ways to attack Corbyn and we all get that. But what there isn't is a candidate 
and there isn't a competing vision. There's no kind of analysis of why it was so many members were attracted to Corbyn. That wasn't an accident and it didn't just happen at once. It happened twice and there is a lot of kind of, you know, people, there's something about his agenda that people really like. So my kind of frustration, I suppose, with my wing of the party is that we're very good at just whinging all the time about how much we cannot stand Corbyn. But nobody is really doing much heavy lifting to say, well, okay, how do you defeat this or come the next uh, leadership contest, which I don't think will be for a long time? How do you have a candidate and a movement and a set of ideas and values that will appeal to our own membership? Matt, do you agree with that, that there won't be a leadership contest for quite a while? I'm I'm honestly not sure. I think there are many issues which are going to prove to be stumbling blocks for a potential leadership contest. You know, I think the current issue for somebody like Tom Watson is that he still doesn't have anywhere near a majority of party members on board for this. And his comments of late, particularly on the General Secretary, Jenny Formby, aren't really endearing him to the swathes of the membership that he needs to convince. And ironically, at this point, he's kind of doing exactly what Corbyn's detractors accused him of, him of doing in, a, in 2015, which was ultimately preaching to the, you know, preaching to the converted. Of course, many in the PLP, I'm sure, quite like Tom Watson, but for as long as he fails to win over the Corbyn allies, who, you know, could be plausible leadership contenders, your Angela Rayners, your Rebecca Long Baileys, then there's no hope for him with the membership. Aisha, do you see Angela Rayner and Rebecca Long Bailey as being plausible leadership contenders? Are they people who you think would improve the party's stance on, on issues such as anti-Semitism, such as Britain's place in the world? It's a very difficult question. I mean, I have a lot of time for both of them. I think Angela Rena is a really interesting character and her backstory is is absolutely incredible. Rebecca Long-Bailey, I know, is seen particularly by John McDonald as being a real serious contender. She's very much his protégé. I just feel like I'm kind of hoping against hope that somehow we can... It's like if we just keep talking about it, it's going to happen. And it's not going to happen. Let's not kid ourselves. We don't know the membership numbers. The membership have a slavish devotion to to Corbyn. A lot of the people that are annoyed with Corbyn, I'm afraid, have left. So I just don't see where this leadership contest is going to come from. And you are... Unless the, the big Corbynites anoint a new candidate and and Corbyn steps away voluntarily. I just think this is all sort of pie in the sky. And I sort of agree with Matt about sort of Tom. You know, I'm a great fan of Tom. I think what he's doing is really important. But I think all the people that are applauding Tom ain't in the party anymore. Why are people staying in the party? You paint quite a a depressing picture, the, the, the picture that Tom Watson's been trying quite hard to counter, particularly after the first breakaway group of MPs, although they probably did as, as good a job as he to put people off from leaving, giving the mess of uh, the Change UK independent group uh, over the past few months. So why are people like you staying in the party? Why aren't more MPs leaving? If they think that Corbyn is is set in place and the membership is slavishly devoted to his ideas, then what's the point? Because the Labour Party has existed for a long time, over 100 years. This has been going on for the last four years. I'm not getting pushed out of my own party, a party which I took a long time to find, a party which gave me a sense of belonging as the daughter of an immigrant, you know, had grown up in quite a difficult time in terms of race relations. I found a party where I felt like I had a tribe and it meant so much to me. I still identify with the positive values of the party. The party has done so much for this country. It's done a lot for my family. The idea that I'm going to be bullied 
out of my party that I took a long time to find. I'm not having that. I'm really not having that. And I get dogs abuse every minute on Twitter. Get out of the party. This isn't your party anymore. Left, right, and, and all this kind of stuff. But I want to fight for the party that I I believe we can be. And I'm not somebody who, like, I think a lot of the ideas that Corbyn has put forward, particularly John McDonnell has put forward, are really interesting ideas. I liked the 2017 manifesto. I'm part of that. Back in the day, I was like a mad lefty. Now I'm somewhere to the right of Genghis Khan, according to the new membership. But, you know, I helped draft the Equality Act. You know, I was part of a team that was pushing for, for more rights, more workers' rights, particularly for women and sort of minorities. So I am quite of the left of the party. I would like to see a kind of a, a sensible left-wing Labour government doing stuff. We've got to change the, the, the country. So I want to try and fight for a, a really good future for this party. But it is hard. I mean, I was out with a group of people the other day. All of us were having this exact same conversation. And these were people, very senior people within the party, advising the party, peers, MPs, really senior people. And we all asked ourselves the question, why are we still here? And will there come a point where there will be a sort of a breaking point? Matt, let's just look at the the team around Jeremy Corbyn. There have been quite a few criticisms of uh, Jenny Formby, Seamus Milne, Carrie Murphy. Uh, the last two are, of course, Jeremy Corbyn's advisers. And it's been reported that John McDonnell and Diane Abbott have actually asked for Corbyn to at least sideline those two advisers. Do, do you think there's a, a dysfunction problem going on a, a, in the top team? I don't think so, no. Obviously, that's that, that's been reported and I don't really know what the honest truth is on that. But I think the suggestions that John McDonnell and Diane Abbott are pushing Corbyn to sideline Seamus Milne and Carrie Murphy are hyperbolic at best and, and false at worst, to be honest. And do you think the leadership has reacted in the most effective way to, for instance, the Panorama broadcast last week? I was incredibly just so demoralised watching that Panorama broadcast because I think, you know, any member of the Labour Party should agree that anti-Semitism is a real issue both in the Labour Party and in wider society and what it does warrant is serious and swift action. I mean, what I what I would say, especially with regards to Jenny Formby, is that she's relatively new in her job and Ian McNichol, who appeared on the Panorama documentary, has had a considerable amount of time to, you know, speed up this process. I'm not sure how much progress he's made himself. I think the argument that this real issue that I believe is being dealt with as best as they possibly can at the moment is essentially being used as a stick to whack Corbyn with. And I don't think those two ideas that it's a real issue and that it's also being weaponised are mutually exclusive. And I think that the weaponization of it does undermine the real seriousness of these allegations and this abuse that's happening in the first place. Aisha, your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, just picking up on the dysfunction at the top. I mean, I have heard from impeccably placed people who are not journalists, who are not talking it up, who have come to me pretty much in tears about how dysfunctional the leader's office is and in terms of the control of the advisers. One MP actually said to me that the reason they had been such an early adopter of Corbyn, and they, they still support the aims of what Corbyn is trying to achieve, was they wanted a very different type of leader's office in operation from what went before my boss, Ed Miliband, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, very command and control kind of, you know, 
the members didn't really have much of a say. They wanted something sort of different. And that is absolutely not what's happening at all. There is very much a feeling that there is an unhealthy concentration of power in a very small number of advisors. That's not healthy. We saw it's not healthy. We saw it with Theresa May, with Timothy and Fiona Hill, very, very dysfunctional. We saw it an extent with Alistair Campbell, you know, Backroom people should not have that level of power. And I'm afraid it comes down to the leader. So with Damien McBride, it should come down to the leader to sort of sort that out. And in terms of the, the weaponization of the anti-Semitism stuff, yes, of course, people have been out to criticise Corbyn. We know that from day one. It really breaks my heart when people are like, oh, yes, we're just going to try and politicise the issue and say it's all been sort of weaponized. When, when the Labour Party's just had such a tradition of trying to fight this stuff and is now making excuses for it. I just, I, I find that absolutely heartbreaking and I couldn't believe how unedifying it was to watch PMQs this week, to see, you know, the Labour Party in a sort of kind of race to the bottom. I'm not racist, you're racist, you're racist. We, you know, you're, you don't like Muslims, you don't like Jews. It was just like, oh my God, I can't believe that this is what it's come to. And actually, I think that often no political party is immune from something like this happening to it. You know, bad stuff happens to any organisation. But the leadership has got to come from the top. And what I just don't understand, I didn't think that panorama programme was that good in the sense that there wasn't a new smoking gun. And if the leadership had just kind of opened their hearts and said to those staff members, I'm so sorry that you've gone through that. We want to fight anti-Semitism too. Sit down, let's talk about this together. Instead of like kind of Carter Ruck getting involved and demonising, I was just like, I, I kind of don't understand that strategy. Matt, what do you think is going to happen next, finally? Well, I mean, I would just say, in, in response to Aisha's point, that I, I agreed the Prime Minister's questions was, you know, an unedifying spectacle. And, and also, you know, I, I never said outright, and I've heard it before, but I don't agree with it, that it's, it's solely weaponisation. I, I hope that I didn't convey that, because it is a real and serious issue, but there are people on the sidelines, obviously, who have other motives. And, you know, moving forwards... I can't imagine there being a leadership contest over summer. You know, there's going to be a vote of no confidence in the from Labour Lords next week. I can't imagine it progressing much further than that. I suppose what it boils down to is whether the Labour right would rather see a Jeremy Corbyn-led government or a Boris Johnson-led government at the end of the day. Thanks, Aisha and Matt. Hello, I am Lara Prendergast, Spectator Life's food and drink editor. And I'm Olivia Potts, Spectator Life's Vintage Chef. Join us for a new podcast from Spectator Radio, Table Talk. Where we chat to guests ranging from Prue Leith to Bryony Gordon about their life through food. Just search for Spectator Radio on the iTunes store. Next, have you heard of Babylon Health? It's a healthcare app that offers GP consultations through your smartphone. By dialing in on video call, a real GP on the other end can diagnose and prescribe for you. But can doctors really diagnose you through an app? And what is the impact on traditional GP clinics from technology like this? Psychiatrist and Daily Mail columnist Dr Max Pemberton raises the question in this week's issue and he joins me now. And to bat for Babylon Health, we also have Dr Matthew Noble, Babylon's UK medical director, on the podcast now. So Max, tell us what Babylon is and what happened to you when you used it. So, so Babylon is a, is a company and it runs two main services. One of them is, is the kind of the standard Babylon online GP 
service. And then they have also branched out now into the NHS, and that's called Babylon GP at Hand. So this is the app that Matt Hancock is really excited about, second, obviously, to his own personal app all about him. <laughs> that's it, exactly, yeah. It's, in fact, it's, it's, it's generated a lot of interest, actually, I think, particularly amongst politicians who've been kind of looking, I think, for quite an easy, straightforward answer, maybe to these very kind of complex problems that we sometimes face in the NHS, um, and particularly kind of, you know, the sustainability, like long-term plans within the NHS. NHS. And I think a lot of politicians have kind of fallen on on, uh, on technology as maybe being being the answer. Okay. And tell me about what happened when you used it. So, I mean, I, I you know, I, I, I work in the NHS, I work full time and I want there to be uh, some solutions to some of the problems we're facing. So, so I, I approached it actually relatively open-minded um, and actually it was out of, out of necessity. So the first time I had some back pain, I wasn't sure what happened, so I went on, uh, I, I got an appointment uh, to see a GP, and actually very, very quickly, within sort of a, just a couple of hours, they thought I maybe had a urinary tract infection, but of course the very nature of the technology means you can't actually see, that you can't examine the patient, and so it was just really done just on my kind of history. They thought I might have a urinary tract infection, so they sent uh, a prescription for antibiotics and to be honest I felt a bit uncomfortable about just sort of taking antibiotics without there being a really clear diagnosis or clear rationale so actually in the end I ended up with my my regular GP and it turns out actually I, I didn't have a urinary tract infection it was actually a small kidney stone and it passed and and the reason they knew that was because they could do a urine t- urine test and they could see that it wasn't uh it, it wasn't urinary tract infection. Matt, you work for Babylon. Presumably you disagree or at least don't think that uh, Max's experience is particularly sort of characteristic of, of the work that GP at hand can do. So our service is high quality and we put a lot of effort into making sure that our GPs are working in precisely the right way. Having had the opportunity to review one of the cases that you quite rightly um, put forward, actually there's there's a couple of points there which didn't make it into the article just I I guess because of editorial constraints which actually mean that the story is slightly different. I think it is really important though that we do question any new thing that comes into the NHS and into healthcare and that's why we put so much effort into making sure that we are collecting the data and the evidence and looking and making sure that the service is as safe as it possibly can be. What are your problems with the piece then that you just mentioned? Um, I obviously can't go into clinical details uh, of somebody uh, on air whilst we're, we're talking, but happy to respond to you around the individual points. But my understanding of the case is, is slightly different to that that was presented, but we can take that outside of this but, conversation. But the, 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 the point about video consultations is quite an important one, isn't it? Because you can't, I mean, you can't do the thing that everyone fears happening to them at the GP, which is someone sticking their finger up their backside. You can't do all of the things that physically happen in a GP surgery you also can only presumably see their sort of head and shoulders when they're on the screen so you can't see their body language when they're talking to you which presumably is quite important in a mental health consultation. Mm. So digital consultations are incredibly useful and incredibly useful for the vast majority of primary care within a, a normal general practice if there is such a thing most of the work these days and most of the consultations are done by telephone so clearly adding video on top of that makes things safe particularly when we think about body language. So our GPs go through quite a lot of training around how to recognise body language, how to respond to cues, particularly around mental health training when you're doing a video consultation. 
one of the, the most striking things for me when you're doing a, a video consultation when you're actually in front of a patient is how much information you can get. It, it's like doing a, a home visit in many ways. You can see the environment they come from. You can see where they are. You can see where they're sitting, what they're doing. Body language is just as important. It's one of the skills that GPs use a lot in their consultations, and it's perfectly possible to do that by video as well. But having said that, video is not the only answer. There will always be a need for people to be seen face-to-face. -face. And that's why as part of our GP at Hand service, if you do need to be seen face-to-face, -face, then we'll arrange that at one of the clinics. Video consultations are really, really important, part of the solution, but they're never going to replace the face-to-face -face in its entirety. But, but, but patients do still have to go, just to respond to that, patients do still have to travel then to the GP, don't they? I suppose that's one of the concerns that has been raised, mm. that I don't think any doctor would query the fact that maybe telephone or indeed kind of you know video consultations can be really helpful I suppose the issue that many of us have and there are a lot of concerns from GPs one of them is that we the the, the process of, of of registering with GP at hand is that you have to then give up your NHS GP don't you so therefore if you're in London you're going to have to travel ironically quite a distance if you do need to be seen and the second instance that I had where I actually had a, a, a skin infection on top of my scalp which was misdiagnosed and I was given a steroid cream although it actually never arrived uh, that actually required somebody to actually have a look at me and it was very hard that was one of the limitations so I would then be faced with traveling right across London to be seen by one of your GPs if I'd registered but, with but, you. But, but Max just to, to cut in on that GPs misdiagnose things the whole time face to face don't they I mean if you talk to consultants in large hospitals who are sort of specialists in you know lymphoma for instance that they can be absolutely seething when a GP has has finally sent a patient to them who, whose life could have been saved had they noticed that their sudden weight loss and night sweats weren't just the fact that they were a bit stressed but actually that they had a cancer so th there's always a misdiagnosis yeah. absolutely yeah. I suppose I suppose my experience of it was just and I have to and I would say the GPs were fantastic and they were very good and very kind of understanding it wasn't that that wasn't my issue it was more of just the limitations of the technology and as I say I think there is a place for this kind of technology my concern is the way it's being rolled out within the NHS means that patients who choose to use this service have to deregister from their regular GP, meaning that actually when it comes to something like just being able to show some of the back of your scalp, actually you can't do that. You're going to have to travel. Yeah, Matthew. So firstly, just to come back on the misdiagnosis point, I, I think again, there's a bit more detail there, which would be good to explore perhaps offline. The ability to add some high quality photos before the consultation makes particularly skin and dermatology actually very appropriate for yeah. digital consultations many times. And skin rashes are very difficult. I sit here as a GP and say, I know that I do not get the right answer all the time. I don't have any particular concerns about that consultation, but again, we'll, we'll take that offline. But just to answer the point around registering, this is a, a GP practice, a GP service. As a GP practice, the NHS says you can only be registered with one GP practice at a time. So to be registered with us, you are fully registered with us, which means we provide the digital consultations and the full wraparound care, the physical consultations as well. If you need a physical consultation, there's five surgeries and we've got more coming online. So plenty of uh, opportunity for people to go to one that is near them. But not all of your patients are that happy. Is it true that there's an attrition rate of uh, one in four who joined it and have now left? It's not actually, no. Our um, 
churn turnover, whatever you like, is very, very similar to that within London uh, at the moment in, in the low kind of teens in terms of people leaving and re-registering the service. We've got quite a mobile population uh, working, doing lots of other things, so it's not altogether surprising, but it, it's in line with London averages. That, just to pick up on that statistic, because that, that, that was, uh, I, I was I quoted directly from the, 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 the work done by Professor Chris Salisbury, and I mean, that was the last kind of in-depth analysis of, of Babylon that I think was published in May 2019, uh, wasn't it? So, I, I mean, I suppose part of the difficulty also is accessing, because Babylon is a private company, is actually accessing some of the data. But I think that also, that paper had also pulled out as being a concern that actually at the moment, there's no very clear evidence base. And that's not to say that, it, again, it doesn't have a role, but I suppose there's a, a lot of concerns that this is being rolled out across the NHS and is also being kind of championed by politicians as this is being the answer. And actually there's real concerns here. So the, there's a lot of data. I mean, you can get data on uh, the registrations for GP at hand, the turnover of patients. It's all publicly available data published by the NHS quarterly. But there's a lot of data that we can't get because Babylon won't let us have it because they say it's commercially sensitive. Uh, all of the data that is available from any other GP practice is available from us we're not hiding any data at all you're most welcome to look at it uh, one of the other points you raised was around prescribing for instance in in the article and actually if you delve into the prescribing data openprescribing.net is a treasure trove of data you'll see that our antibiotic prescribing is actually in the the lowest 20 percent of all antibiotic prescribing in the country for gps so some of the concerns which you've highlighted i, I don't think are true and you can actually look at all the data it's all publicly available Max, you've accepted that this could be you know, part of the toolkit for solving GP waiting lists and making it easier for some patients not to have to travel in just to you know, deal with something that the doctor can just talk to them about. But you seem to be worried that ministers are so, particularly Matt Hancock, are so excited by new technology that they're sort of rushing into this. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think that's precisely it. Every service, I think, um, is trying to think of ways to innovate. Um, you know, the service I work in, I work in mental health, and the service we work in, uh, are thinking about ways of can we use Skype, can we use telephone or telephone uh, consultations, not just to make it easier and quicker for the doctor, but also to make it easier for the patient, because mm-hmm. patients often have to travel very far and they don't want to. Actually, something that's very relatively straightforward and simple. I suppose my concern is that this is being rolled out, it's being offered to patients when there is not good, I would argue, there's not good evidence base in in its effectiveness for population-wide, because at the moment we know that the people that tend to be using this service tend to be well, significantly are younger, so 95% are under the age of 45, and they tend to also be from very affluent areas, so they are very different users to your average kind Does of GP matter, user. Though? Well, I suppose it matters for several reasons. Firstly, that the, the, the kind of what we can draw from their experiences may be very different if you are a 65-year-old woman with early-onset dementia who's also got arthritis and so on and so on. That's going to be a very different experience to if you're kind of you know busy professional. But also there's this concern around cherry-picking where the kind of easiest, most simple patients are taken off, are hived off, are taken over by services like Babylon, leaving the very complex and expensive patients with NHS GPs. Matthew, are you actually making it harder for the most vulnerable people? So this is, this is about choice. This is about providing an NHS that works for everyone. Arguably, the NHS, which we have in traditional general practices, isn't working for a section of the population at the moment. Our service is there to work for that section and indeed anyone else who wants to join us. It's really important that people get the choice to pick a GP service, a primary care service that works for them and is available when they want it. So the fact that we can provide a service 24 hours a day, seven days a week, actually is really appealing to people who have work and caring commitments. So they're able to access the care when and where they want it. 
it's also really appropriate for anyone who wants to join us. I'm not saying that digital is the answer to everything and to every ill. It would be remiss of me to suggest there was one solution to some of the challenges which worldwide we face in healthcare. But I think it is absolutely part of the solution. And for those people who choose it and it works for, it works very, very well. Thanks, Max and Matthew. Next, let's take a quick break from this Spectator podcast. Subscribers to the magazine will know that each week the issue is dotted with some choice poems. But they never make it online, so we figured why not give them some airtime on the podcast. So here is our resident poetry fanatic, Joe Bond, with the first poem of the week. Hunters in the Snow, After Bruegel, by N.S. Thompson. This is the world we know and do not know. The village as it always is. But what about those mountains over there? They seem to point to finitude, the end of things. But we are in the foreground and preoccupied with trudging infinitely through the snow. And finally, with almost a million Poles living in the UK, they're the biggest immigrant group in the country. But why do we never see Polish actors or characters on TV or on film? In this week's issue, writer Ben Sixsmith laments the lack of Polish representation on screen. And to get to the bottom of it, my colleague Cindy Yu spoke to the Polish ambassador to London, Akadi Regotsky, earlier today, together with his wife Yolanta Regotska and Polish journalist Jakub Krupa. Ambassador, can you tell us why you think there are so few Polish characters and actors on screen in Britain? I'm so glad there's a very interesting article in The Spectator about lack of Polish actors, lack of Polish themes uh, in, in British television. But I think that the problem is much, much broader. We still need more knowledge about Poland, no, more knowledge about Central Europe here in Britain, especially because uh, Poles are the largest uh, community here in Britain and because um, there's so many links, uh, there's so many uh, interesting stories mm. about Poles and, and, and uh, British people uh, going back to history, but also nowadays we cooperate very closely. We've got the ambassador's wife here as well, Yolanta. You are an expert in theatre history. What is the history of Polish theatre like? Is it very rich and uh, is it very outward looking? Do people in the diaspora bring it over here when they come? It is very rich and I would say that Poles can't really do without theatre. Even their community in, in Hammersmith has a, a, a full uh, repertoire theatre that they are sometimes struggling but they are very much willing to keep up. And we've also had some nice stories to share recently as we celebrated the theatre links between Poland in Britain with our Shakespeare and Poland festival at the Globe, at Shakespeare's Globe, where we told about Jan Kochanowski, who was one generation earlier before William Shakespeare, but where we also talked about our Polish links with Hamlishian productions and with, with Shakespeare in general and about how Polish theatre over many, many years and centuries uh, has been reading British literature in, in, in its, its own creative way. So, yeah, it's something that we, we're happy to share. Yeah, and, and, and Abasto, what do you think the diaspora here can do more to campaign for more representation? Like we often hear from Asian minorities that there's not enough representation and they're very vocal about it. Do you think there's something different about the Polish diaspora that means they're not so vocal about this issue? I think that we all should cooperate on, on, on that. Uh, so there's the uh, important issue for Polish diaspora, but also important issue for our British friends. There's a lot of friends of Poland among British people, 
so I think that that we all together uh, should think about uh, better representation of Polish subjects, Polish issues uh, in British schools and the universities, but also uh, in British media. And Ambassador, um, Ben Sixsmith in his piece talks about the British shows that Poles do like, Allo Allo and Mr Bean. They're all very um, traditional British shows from quite a long time ago as well. <laughs> Why do you think it is that Poles love those typical British shows? No, the truth is that, that it's difficult to imagine Polish culture without British uh, culture, without British theatre, without British films without British political thought. So there's a huge influence. It used to be also quite a big influence from Poland going to, to, to Britain, to England. My wife uh, mentioned Kochanowski, but, but we can find some Polish issues in, in Hamlet, can find some, some inspiration for the Union 1707 uh, with Polish uh, experience of Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, a Polish-Lithuanian Union. So there's a lot of links going back to, to history and only to the history of the Second World War. So let's, let's focus on that. Uh, Jakob, and your legend just now mentioned this Hammersmith Theatre. Can you tell us a bit more about it? Because I know you're volunteering there, aren't you? Yeah, that's correct. So there's a Polish community centre in Hammersmith, and that's one of the oldest Polish community centres in the UK. And we have a theatre. We now are launching a cinema as well. We are planning to show Polish movies on a regular basis, both documentaries and feature films and all kinds of films, just to bring that additional level of knowledge about Poland to British audiences, to show them basically how Poland has changed and how Poland looks like now. What is interesting about Poland, there are so many stories, as the ambassador mentioned earlier, that people just don't know about. And I think it's Such as? No, f- such as, I mean, the obvious example for me is always the Polish government in exile. And next year, we're going to have the 30th anniversary of the government moving back to Poland uh, in December. So there's still a chance the producer is going to take that script and make it into a movie. I hope... Producers, if you're listening, please do get hint. in touch. <laughs> Absolutely, please do get in touch. I mean, it's a great story, a fascinating, extraordinary story of people who basically build the country outside of their own country and you know it, it happened here in London so it's a fast and links like that exist on, on every single level so I think it's, it would be great to, to get more visibility in that sense. But Jaka, one of the problems that comes with more visibility is higher risk of stereotyping. Yeah I mean in that sense I think you know the st- stereotypes about Poland are so well developed that we probably the only thing we can do we can counter that now. Ben even uh, alludes to that saying that you know all the Polish characters are sort of coming from Poland and now being enlightened in the UK in one way or another, which is obviously not positive and obviously not true for Polish people in the UK. And I think there is a way for us to sort of show extraordinary contribution on a daily basis that Poles make to this country and show new characters. I know that in Killing Eve now there's a Polish character as well called Nico, who's the husband of the main character. And he seems to Spoilers be for season he seems two. to be a good person, but I haven't seen the whole thing. So I'm not sure how, how he gets to the end. So if he does something stupid, I do apologize for that. Yeah, Ben Sixsmith does um, mention this Polish character who moves from East Enders to be the Polish character in Coronation Street. Yeah exactly. I've seen you know Almeida Theatre and other theatres, I've seen the same actress going from one play to another to play Polish cleaners. It's like, it's just ridiculous. I mean, why don't you give her like a good role, like a proper role? She deserves one. She, she, she actually took part in the Shakespeare Globe Festival. Well, she, she, she's amazing. So, Yeah, and also if I may add something, I've talked to a couple of Polish actors struggling for, for work here and they keep telling me that, you know, the only thing they can possibly think about being cast in is mm-hmm. a, a role of a Russian immigrant. So there's also a kind of stereotype there for them that they obviously want to, to go beyond and, and maybe there is space for that. And just ending on a more positive note, Ambassador Yolanda and Yakov, could you recommend me your favourite Polish TV shows that we should be watching here in London? I don't know. 
I, I don't watch TV. I don't even have a TV. So <laughs> maybe this is the problem. <laughs> but I think that. So I mean, particularly if you watch the so latest films in Poland. I mean, I guess many listeners would have seen The Cold War, for example. It's a great Polish Oscar-nominated film. Previous to that, either so, so many fascinating works coming out from Poland. But also, if I may quickly just say, I think there will be a fascinating moment in the coming years when there will be a generation of people who are born in the UK to, to Polish parents or born in Poland but moved to the UK at a very early age who will be becoming directors, film, you know, film, film producers, actors, actresses, football players. There's a great um, pair of Polish siblings playing for Chelsea FC now, both of them eligible to play for Poland and England. So I think there will be a moment in the next few years when you will start seeing more Polish-sounding names in public sphere in the UK, and I think that's going to be a great moment for us to break the stereotypes and break the popular misconception about Polish people in the UK. There's a lot of uh, good Polish films. Jakub mentioned one of them, but we can mention Courier, which is also connected to the Polish-British history from the Second World War, when very brave men went to London with very, very important information also about holocaust uh, so so we can we can find a lot of a lot of interesting links uh, and a lot a lot of uh, interesting films but first of all i would like to invite everybody to poland go to poland and and look how uh, dynamic country how vibrant country is, is poland nowadays if i were to choose i think i would go for a classic and i think i would go for andrzej wider's the promised land just because it was so close to getting an oscar what is it about uh, it's about the birth of a modern state It's about Poland in the end of the 19th century, but you have three friends who set up a company. It's a kind of a startup <laughs> story. And the film shows it's based on a classical Polish novel, but it, it is fascinating as a cinematic piece as well. And I think it tells a lot about our school of cinema. Very quickly, if you read Ben Sixsmith's piece and you want to Google the Polish films mentioned there, don't, don't do that. Just start from the Vida. Don't do with the Pitbull and others. Just just not worth your time. <laughs> Ambassador Yolanta and Jakob, thank you so much. And that's it for this week. Pick up this week's issue to read all the pieces discussed in this episode, as well as Nick Robinson's diary, Liam Halligan on Leo Varadka, and descendant Max Tone Graham on Kent's new bishop. If you subscribe to the magazine via spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher, we'll even throw in a £20 Amazon voucher. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. <laughs>